Good morning. I want to greet each one in Christ's name this morning. Sorry for the interruption during the singing. It's just that don't usually have two PowerPoints in the same morning, and so we can't, can't quite get it ready as easily as we normally would. This morning, I have a message that is going to be a little bit different than what I normally give. And one of the things going into it that I want to be quite clear up front is some of you may look at this message and feel that it's political, but it is not. It's not political and it's not about politics. And even if I mentioned this morning conservative, liberal, I'm not sure, I don't have that in my notes, but in case it would come up in my thoughts, if I mention the right and the left, when it comes to the Jews and the land of Israel, it's not political. Why do we feel it's political? Anyone would say? Anybody brave enough? The media has, and who else has? Political parties have made it very political. But I want us to look at it this morning that I believe clearly that it's not political. It's spiritual. Why is this a subject that at times can get political? It's because the enemy wants us to either shy away from it or focus on the wrong things. Last Sunday morning, I had already started thinking about going this direction with my message. Last Sunday morning, Tim mentioned his devotions, that we need to be careful not to start to desire the revenge of October 7th or the revenge on the terrorist. And that's what makes this tricky for us as believers, or can be tricky, if we don't have a a well thought through and clear belief system on it, is we need to be careful that we don't sit there and rejoice at the death of those who hate Israel. I don't condone the killing of the people in Gaza, but at the same time, I believe the scripture is clear that the Jews have a right to the land, and I'll go into that later. The Jews have a right to the land, and I believe every sovereign nation on this earth has a right to defend their country, and that's what's happening right now, and it does mean the death of a lot of people, and it's that part of it's sad. But how do we look at it through the eyes of Christ? We're followers of Christ. My desire is that every person, not only in Israel, but in all the world, would come to know him. But yet, that's not going to happen. The Bible is clear that each person has a choice, and many are going to choose otherwise. Partly why I wanted to give this message, as I mentioned, it can be tricky to navigate these thoughts and reaction to what's going on in the world, especially what's going on in Israel today. The other part of why I wanted to give this message this morning is I believe we are going to get, receive more and more pressure as believers to side with Hamas, to side with the Gazans, And the false dichotomy is being pushed right now that to side with the Jews means that you hate the Gazans or you're anti-Gazan or anti-Muslim. And I believe this is false. I believe as believers, as followers of Christ, we we can do both. But for me personally, I cannot change the fact that I do view someone who is a Jew, I do view him a little bit differently than I do view 
a Muslim or any other person who is not a Jew. And that's because the Bible looks at them differently. Not that one is better than the other, but the fact is the Jews are God's chosen people. And I can't get away from that. But what we're seeing right now in our world is a rise of anti-Semitism that I've not seen in my lifetime. I don't think anyone else here has seen it in their lifetime. I always struggled when I would... I love history and I loved looking back, especially at World War II. It fascinated me. All the dynamics that went into that war, all the motivations... But it always was hard for me to wrap my mind around the anti-Semitism that portrayed itself in World War II. I was just listening to a Jewish man, I believe it was Friday, Friday I was listening to him talk about how leading up to World War II, the Jews living in Europe and Germany had thought that they were assimilating slowly into European society. And they discovered pre-World War II and during World War II that no matter what they did, they couldn't change the fact that there were people who hated them for no other reason than who they were, what their DNA was. And that's what we're seeing today. It just boggles my mind today when the Jews were attacked on October 7th in Israel you would have thought that at least for a few moments, the world in general, the anti-Semitism would have dropped because people would have been appalled to do that. And yet what we've seen is the reverse. How can you explain that? How can we explain what's happening? And I, I believe strongly that the first thing, first uh, explanation is that what we're seeing happening in the world right now is demonic. That... It's not just, like I said, it's not political. It's not political. Even though some people like to think about it in politics. Well, it's because the Jews, you know, were not giving the Gazans everything they wanted. Or it's because they wouldn't give them full rights. And on and on it went. But it just didn't explain what happened on October 7th. And what's happening with all the protests in Europe, in America, something rises up in me that just hates to see that because of where I fear it's, it's going. Second reason I think we see the rise of anti-Semitism is this false belief that Muslims have been pushing around the world is that they're the underdog. And what do we do with underdogs? How many of you, when you're watching a sporting event, whether it's baseball, basketball, football, and you have no team that's your favorite team, who do you root for usually? So who roots for the best team? Nobody? Who roots for the underdog? A lot of you. I do. If I have no, no bias and I just see these two teams playing, I want the underdog to win. So I believe that's what the Muslims have been pushing for many years now, is this idea that they're the underdog. Are they the underdog in the Middle East, Jerry? No. And we'll look at that later as we go through some statistics, but they're far from the underdog. They outnumber Jews Many times over, I don't have the exact number. But Muslims control 30-some nations. Jews control how many nations? One. And so this idea is false, the idea that Muslims are the underdog. The final reason that I believe we see the anti-Semitism rising right now is the rejection of people, and this goes for our nation as well, the rejection of God And so therefore they reject the people 
that are followers of God. And so the Jews, I understand, many don't follow God today, but yet they are tied to God because of what God did for them in the past. And also I believe that once the target is no longer as much on the Jews, I believe that same hatred will be pointed at us. So in, in some ways this message will come off as depressing, but wait till the end. I believe there's a lot of hope that we also can find in Scripture when we think about the land of Israel. But one of the things I've thought about in the last month is, would I be willing to die to not have to say, would I be willing to die to say that I believe that the Jews have a right to live? And you're seeing that people are willing to beat up other people, even kill them, if they dare stand up for the Jewish people. And I believe we may have to take that stand at some point. You may think, well, why do we have to do that? And once again, I go back to, remember, it's not a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's demonic. It's spiritual. And that's why... At some point, we may have to take a stand that could even risk our own lives. One of the things I want to focus on this morning, and it's maybe, like I said, it gets tricky when we think about ourselves as being not people who take up arms, who go to fight. How do we look at this issue? Do the Jews have a right to the land and to defend themselves? And how I explain it, and not everyone agrees with me, and maybe not even everyone here this morning, but the idea of there being different dispensations is how I departmentalize it myself. I, as a believer, am called to never take up an arm to defend myself or anyone else. But at the same time, the Bible is clear that nations have the right to do this. Where do we get this idea? Jesus' own words in John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. That I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from thence. So we may suffer persecution going forward as we get closer to the return of Christ. But why am I such a strong supporter of the Jews? The number one point, I don't have it in my PowerPoint, but the number one point is, I believe that we did not replace the Jews. Many people struggling today to know where they stand on Israel and how to respond, those who are believers, I believe are those who struggle with the idea, maybe even believe that we have replaced the Jews. And when you do that, it makes it really hard to know how to respond to what's going on in the world right now. Number two, why am I such a strong supporter of the Jews? Is if I reject the Jews, I believe that I'm also rejecting the God of the Jews. And so I think that's, that, or I know that's one of the reasons why I'm such a strong supporter of the Jews. And the third one is I believe that Jesus' second coming, for it to happen, I believe the Jews need to be in the land. And as I mentioned four or five months ago in a message I had on different end time views, that what if the nation of Israel, what if the state of Israel ended as we see it right now and the Jews were pushed out of the land of Israel, would it, I asked the question kind of to myself, would it, would my faith fail? Would I no longer believe in God? And I don't believe that's true because my timing and God's timing may not be necessarily be the same. But I'm going to, I got thinking about it since October 7th of why I don't think it's possible for the Jews to be pushed out of the land anymore. And I understand this is logical, it's not spiritual. 
but it's a logical reasoning of why them being pushed out of the state of Israel today would end very poorly. So, today, how many Jews live in Gaza? Anybody want to guess? They're, they're just there for the war. They're not, they don't live there. How many Jews live in Jordan? How many Jews live in Saudi Arabia? So what I'm going to look at now is Jewish population around the world. So there are 16 million Jews that are fully considered Jewish. There's actually another 7 million that the Jews would consider have a right to return to the land of Israel where one of their parents or grandparents was Jewish. But for now, we're just going to use the number 16 million. So 6.3 million live in Israel. 5.7 million live in the United States. 450 in France. 393,000 in Canada. That's where the majority live. And then from there, it drops drastically. We get down to number 23. This list of names, the reason I give them is because they're Muslim-majority nations. Turkey, we have 14,500. You see the numbers there. We go all the way down to Tunisia, 1,000. What's outstanding about this list? Is it anywhere close to Israel? Is it the surrounding nations? No, these are removed, one or two nations away from Israel. And I would venture to say that their Jews are not going to be welcome in any of these nations for very much longer. Now we're going to move to a couple of nations here that we see that surround Israel immediately, that touch borders with Israel. We have Egypt, 100 Jews live there. Syria, 100 Jews live there. Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq, the, the numbers are so few, they don't even have statistics for those nations. So if the Jews were driven out of the land of Israel... Where would they go? There are people arguing right now on the side of the Palestinians, Muslims, Gazans, that, well, the Jews should just go back to their home countries. Where are those home countries? There's only one. The last country most Jews that live in Israel today were the last country they lived or their parents or their grandparents were a lot of these Muslim countries. They're no longer welcome to return. So if they were kicked out of the land of Israel, they would have nowhere to go. So I just had this map also for you to see. These are each of the countries that I was mentioning So the one with the highest number is Turkey. But I don't believe that's going to be for much longer. But there's no place for the Jews to go to. Those are where many of the Jews that are in Israel today. Yes, some came from Europe, especially following the Holocaust. Some came from Russia. Some came from the United States. But many of them, millions of them, came from these countries surrounding Israel And so they have no place to go. So the logical reason for the state of Israel to exist today, and this is one that many people are making right now, is that if they were pushed out of Israel, there would be another Holocaust. It's the plain truth of it. But for me, the bigger argument is not a logical one. It's a spiritual one. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Up till now, I have not really read a lot of verses, but now I'm going to get into some as we finish the message. Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. God promised the land to Abraham and his descendants. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, 
Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given me given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And he's talking about Ishmael there, I believe. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards the heavens, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these things, all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid one piece, one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcass, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. This is talking about their time in Egypt. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, Thou shalt be buried in good old age, but in the fourth generation thou shalt come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it shall come to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites and the Kezanites and the Kadamites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Rephims and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Girgashites and Jebusites. So he goes through promising two things clearly. The first thing he promised was that this would be for his seed. And when he said his seed, even Abraham clarified, what is he talking about? Because Ishmael, I believe, was living at this time, according to the scriptures here. Abraham also clarified that this wasn't going to go to his servant. This was going to go to his seed and him and Sarah's seed. So in this scripture, we, have, we can see a number of things that God clearly states to Abraham that is under attack even to this day. One of them is there's people who go all the way back prior to this and say, well, somebody lived in the land prior to Abraham possessing it, the children of Israel possessing it when they came out of Egypt. Where are those people today? There are Arabs today that would claim that they have their descendants of those people But read your Bible. Um, I'm not going to take time this morning, obviously, for lack of time. But Joshua 8 talks about the story of how he and the Israelites completely destroyed the city and people of Ai. They had possessed the land of Canaan. There are repeated stories like this. There are are also stories like Joshua 9 where some of the cities sent ambassadors and they tricked Joshua and the Israelites to let them live. But it wasn't that they were allowed to keep their kingdom or their city. They were enslaved by the Israelites and they lost their cities, they lost their land to the children of Israel. But many people today come much closer. They come right up to the early 1900s. They forget about the 1500 years where Jews possessed the land, even though they would be people would come in The Babylonians would take a lot of them away as captives. They would basically have political control over the land. But everyone knew that this was the Jews' land for 1,500 years. 
There are Muslims who try to claim that they have possessed it since the 7th or 8th century. I don't have time to go into all that this morning. There's, there's a lot of these things that I am very passionate about, and I have a lot of information in my head. I don't want to bore you with it. But for, for, from the 8th century, when Islam did have political control over the land of Israel, they never made it Muslim. They never set up cities and governments, created histories. They simply had, um, they basically just had control over it. When the Jews began to repopulate in the, late, the mid to late 1800s, most of the landowners lived in the Muslim countries surrounding Israel. Most of them didn't even live there. They, they disliked it so much. And so the Jews have never ceased from living in the land of Israel since the time of when Joshua and the Israelites entered the land. But one way or the other, spiritually, covenantally, God gave the land to the Jews. But what if you don't believe in that? What if, like many people today, reject the Bible, reject Scripture? Well, then they have to change history because even history says that this has been the land of the Jews since the time of Joshua. But they try to forget or they try to change history. Um, looking back, it looked that as that they don't know for sure, but as many as one to two million Jews lived in the land of Israel when Christ walked on the earth. But over the next 200, 300 years with all their wars with Rome, all the different conflicts, over half a million Jews were killed and then many others fled. So that by the time of the year 1800, I had heard the number before of 15,000 doing some research yesterday. It may have been as few as seven to 10,000 Jews were living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. But don't be naive. That doesn't mean that there were 100,000 Arabs living in that land. There just weren't very many people living there. Yes, there were Arabs, there were Christians, because since the Crusades of the 9th and 10th centuries, Christians had also dwelt in the land of Israel. But it was generally a deserted land. There were not a lot of people there. Many, most of you or all of you have heard of Mark Twain. He visited what was then called Palestine in 1867, and this was his quote. A desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere, even the olive and the cactus. Those fast friends of the worthless soil had almost deserted the country. This doesn't mean there were no one there. That's been also a false narrative I don't know how many of you heard, but in the late 1800s, the idea was ignoring the fact the history of the Jewish people to the land of Israel said, well, there's nobody there. It's an empty land. So a land without a people for a people without a land. Some of you may have heard that term. But that wasn't true either. There were Jews. There were some Muslims living there. In the, in the mid-18 to late 1800s, the Jews began to return. Many of them saw the need to go back, and many of them who did not believe in Christ wanted to go back and make it possible for their mind that Messiah could come, because they knew the biblical prophecies. They needed to be in control. They needed to be living in the land for Jesus to come. So they wanted to go back and make that happen. They also wanted to go back, back and have a nation of their own. Even though Jews lived in almost every country in the world at that time, if not every country, nowhere did they have the control of the government. It wasn't, there was no other Jewish nation. 
Much of the land was owned by Muslim absentee owners or Muslims living in the area. And Jews began buying the land. Often what would happen is poor Jews would go to the land of Israel and rich Jews from the countries they came from would send money and buy the land. So that by the early 1900s, more and more land was being purchased by the Jews. So today the idea is that the Jews stole the land. That's a common narrative among the pro-Muslim, pro-Hamas groups. Is this true? Well, it is true that some of the land was abandoned by the Arabs during the War of Independence, 1948. But most of it was bought legally, purchased, and so forth. So this is not true that they stole the land. I want to go through real quick a little bit of the history of what led up to the current ownership, how the Israel ended up with the land it has today. Another term that's being thrown a lot around a lot is colonialism. That the Jews went in as colonialists and just took over. The way Britain took over countries, the way the U.S., the way France, many Western countries took over poor countries and just ran them. This is false and very false, and I want to look at that. So at the end of World War I, Britain was given control over this whole area that you see on the map there, both the white and the yellow. And in 1922, they attempted to bring peace between the Palestinians, I mean, between the Muslim Arabs and the Jews. And so what they said is, we'll make that area the Transjordan, all the Muslims and Arabs can go there, and all the Jews can be in the white area. Any of you know that history is part of that happened. The Transjordan area, if there were any Jews living in that area, they were forced out into the Jewish part of Palestine. But what happened to the Muslims and the Arabs living in the Jewish part? Where did they go? Anybody know? They stayed put. They didn't want to leave. And so time went on. 1940s roll around and there's protests, there's riots between the Arabs and the Jews. And you still have the same squabbles you had before. Even though 77% of the land mass was given to the Muslims, the Arabs, it didn't matter. They still had the same argument. They still had the same goal that they have today, and that was to eradicate the Jews out of the land. So here's a map that may be a little hard to see. Um, but this was the UN's plan. It was to give this gray area here to the Jews and to give this white area to the Muslims. They thought, well, once again, we'll give the Muslims land and we'll give the Jews land. The Jews agreed to it. The Muslims did not. And so they had the, we had the War of Independence. On the day that the war began, this is what the borders looked like. But five of the surrounding nations, let me see if I can get the names here, Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq all put their armies on the border of Israel, and they were determined to wipe the Jews out. So by the end of night, or by the March of 1949, this is actually what the borders looked like, the red lines. Jordan controlled this area. Egypt controlled this area, and this is what was controlled by the Jewish nation. You can see why some of the reasons why they took what they did. Where was Jerusalem in that first map? It's in this little area right here. And the UN had the idea, which was a crazy one, it didn't work, that Jerusalem would be an inter- Jerusalem and Bethlehem would be an international cities controlled by the UN, by the world, that somehow the Palestinians, the Arabs, and the Jews would get along in that city. What's the problem with that map? How do the 
Jews get food into Jerusalem. There was no way for them to get food. So what happened was the Muslims attacked any shipment of food into the city of Jerusalem for the Jews living there. And that was the biggest crisis during the War of Independence is they attempted to starve the Jews of Jerusalem and came very close to doing it. When the war was eventually won by the Jews and that corridor was created to Jerusalem, the Jews were down to their last little bit of food and had been living for a few months on rations that were not much more than what the Jews in the concentration camps had lived on. Since then, what has happened? They've had the War of 1956, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, two wars with Lebanon, smaller wars to deal with Lebanon and Gaza since. The current war going on in Gaza today is the biggest, largest mobilization of soldiers since 1948. One of the points of my message, too, I want to make this morning is I believe that the West and the U.S. will eventually turn against the nation of Israel. And we as Christians and believers, if we're still here, are going to be pressured into, sorry, I went too far there, pressured into siding with them. Today's borders look like this. This area was taken over by Israel in the, 19, in the Six-Day War along with this area, is no longer controlled by Jordan. It's called West Bank, the Gaza, obviously, that's in the news right now. These areas were given politically. These areas could vote for their own mayors and leaders. This area was given completely over. Israelis have not been in that area since 2006, I believe, 2005 or 2006. This has been a no-go zone for Uh, outsiders for a long time. Even this area, Jews are taking a risk to go into this area. When In 2019, when Dwayne's and us along went with Jerry's and the others, we went and visited Jericho. That's in the West Bank. When we entered the road to go into Jericho, there was a big red sign there saying, if you're a Jew, you're going to have a good chance of dying if you go past this sign. That's the reality they live with. So even though Israel militarily has control over that. They don't have their police in there or their military in there unless there's a, uh, a threat and they go in and take care of it, but they come right back out. So when you hear about what's going on over there, recognize that even though Israel has been called colonizers, that is not true. For one, there have been Jews living there for over 2,000 years. Secondly, most of the land that they own today was purchased legally or already owned by Jews. But one reason I wanted to bring up this map again, so we can see there in the red is the land that Israel has today. Yes, it shows the West Bank. They have military control over that, but they don't really own it. No Jews are allowed to live there. Gaza right here. No Jews are allowed to live there, even though it's within the military borders of Israel. But what did God promise to Abraham that we read back there in Genesis 15? He mentions the river of Egypt. It mentions the Euphrates. And so... I don't know if this is how much the Jews will eventually end up with. I've always pictured it much smaller, maybe something like this. But it's possible that this is what the land of the Jews will eventually look like. So first question you may ask, have they ever had this much land? Jerry, you probably, they have never had this much land. I went and looked at maps, I'm not going to show it this morning. But even when King David and Solomon had the most land that the Jewish people ever had, all they had was this over to about here, down through here, somewhere in here. That's the most land that the Jews ever had. It never came close to the river of Egypt or the Euphrates. 
So when people say that all of the prophecy in Scripture has already happened, to me this is one of the clearest points to say it has not happened. Israel has never controlled this area. My wife asked me, I'm not trying to embarrass her, my wife asked me this morning, will they ever have it? How many believe they will someday have that much land? A lot of you aren't sure. So I can't prom I can't predict when this is going to happen, but I believe strongly, just as Jerry, I believe strongly that someday they will have this land. And one of the reasons I'm saying all this is to give us hope. Things look dark for Israel right now. I contacted our tour guide that we went through Israel with in 2019. Sorry, I don't need you to get this emotional, but... Let him know I was praying for him, asking him how it was going. He didn't have a lot of words, but he said it was, it's tough. He doesn't even live anywhere near where the people were killed. But most likely, the way everyone knows each other in a country as small as Israel, the way the Jews are such a small group, most likely he knew someone that died on October 7th. A lot more bad things are going to happen to Israel. I want to turn to, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14, I'm going to begin at verse, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and the half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the resident of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Have we comprehended what we just read there? If we think October 7th was bad, this will make October 7th look like nothing. Same thing that happened on October 7th. The way the children, the women were treated, the families. The same thing will happen but on a much larger scale. And it will happen to not just kibbutzes and small outposts in southern Israel. It will happen to Jerusalem. There not only will be 240 captives. It says that half the city will go into captivity. We're going to go on. But then comes what we can Look forward to. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem. On the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. And there shall be a great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it towards the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Hazal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with them, with thee. And it shall come to pass that in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not the day nor the night, but it shall come to pass that at the evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that the living water shall come out from Jerusalem and half of them towards the former sea, and half of them towards the hinder sea in summer and in winter shall it be. And I'm just going to stop there for a moment. I remember when we stood and looked at the Dead Sea with our tour group in Israel that Jerry said that someday this sea will not be dead anymore. And here we see that prophecy speaking of it. How will it happen? Today they talk about ideas. The Dead Sea is drying up. They're worried that there won't be any water left in it. Because so much water from the Sea of Galilee that comes down the Jordan River never makes it there because of all the irrigation and the people needing water and the towns and the cities. 
They've talked about taking water from the Red Sea and pumping it up to the Dead Sea and putting it in. I don't know if that will happen. I don't know if man will be able to make that happen. But on this day, it won't be dead water. It won't be seawater. It will be fresh water that comes from the Mount of Olives. And it will be so much water that it will run towards the Dead Sea and it will run towards the Mediterranean at the same time. Where was I? In verse 10, And all the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place, from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, under the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel, under the king's wine presses. And men shall dwell on it, and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague wherein the Lord will smite all the people who have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass, in that day there shall be a great tumult, for the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah shall also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And, it shall, and so shall be the plague of the horse, and of the mule, and of the camel, and of the ass, and all the beasts that shall be in these tents as this plague. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of the nation shall come against Jerusalem, shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts of the tabernacles. To me, this is also another amazing insight in what it will look like when Jesus returns to rule the earth. It doesn't mean everyone's going to be real happy about it, but it says that they will all come to Jerusalem to worship. And if they don't, they won't get any rain. It's quite clear. It will be very clear the reason why. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, that, that have no rain, and there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord shall smite the heathen that come not up to the, keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of the tabernacles. And in that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. All they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and the seed and seed therein, and in that day there shall be no more a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Praise the Lord. When we see what's happening, it can be very discouraging. And it is. It is dark what's happening right now. And as we see here in this scripture, there's more bad things to come. But what needs to, what what can we look at to give us hope? It's that knowing that Christ is coming back. And someday he will stand. I have a picture here on the PowerPoint that's looking from the Mount of Olives across the valley to the Mount the Temple Mount to the eastern gate there. And Jesus will open that gate. And there will be true peace on earth. We are still called, though, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem today. And I think it's because of what's yet to come. Terrible things are coming. But wonderful things are coming. And last of all, I want to read in Revelations chapter 19. In Zechariah, we have kind of the view of what it looked like, what's happening in this, at this event from the perspective on earth. Now in Revelations chapter 19, verse 11, we see the perspective more from heaven. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and upon his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vessel dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth forth a sharp sword, 
that with it he should smite the nations and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress with the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath known his vestures and on his thighs a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in, in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and them that sit on them. And the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon his horse, which the sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And I will let you read on from there if you desire. This takes place after the marriage supper of the Lamb. I believe the marriage supper of the Lamb follows the, the uh, <clears throat> when we're taken up to heaven during the rapture. And then immediately after the supper of the Lamb, Jesus comes back with his armies and takes over Jerusalem and the whole world. We're living in times of deception. Satan is still free to do his thing. And yet, there's coming a day when Jesus will stand upon the Mount of Olives. And I look forward to that day. I hope each one of you do too. Because things can be tough. It can be hard to know what's true today. But let's remember that the battle we're in is spiritual. But we serve a king who is greater than all others. The Lord bless each one of you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord. The fact that you have kept your covenant with Abraham can also give us hope for the future to know that you will keep your covenant with us. Help us, Lord, to remain faithful, to be true followers of you. Help us, Lord, not to be deceived by the things around that want to draw us away from you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful until you call us home, until you return. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.